What do we do when the frame of meaning that orients our world is disrupted and we discover a violent underside lurking behind what were once meaningful symbols? My name is Colton Bernasal, a friend and essay contributor for World Outspoken. I am a follower of Jesus, somebody who believes that Jesus' teachings, way of life, crucifixion, and resurrection reveal the presence of God in our world. But I also know what it is like to struggle existentially with losing sight of the good news to which the Christian symbols point. This terrifying loss of apprehension is, as I described in the last episode, a symbolic devastation, a devastation that results from the role Christian symbols have in injustices like colonialism, white supremacy, U.S. nationalism, and the harm these injustices have caused in both the past and the present. Symbolic devastation is an experience we undergo when the potentially liberating meaning of Christian symbols is lost, and the symbol becomes a religious means to justify domination. The very symbol itself seems to give religious sanction to this injustice. And this raises questions. How do symbols get devastated in the first place? What does it feel like to experience the death of the meaning of the symbols we cherish? And how might we re-encounter the liberating meaning of these symbols after their silence? In this episode, I want to consider these questions from the viewpoint of one symbol in particular, the cross. We wear the cross on our necks, we gesture the cross while we pray, and crosses are often set atop roofs or burrowed into the ground to mark a building as a church. Beyond that, the cross is an important symbol of Jesus' crucifixion. It is the means by which the Roman Empire tortured and murdered somebody they believed to be a rouser of rebellion. Once a symbol of Roman domination, it had been subverted and remade to signify the Christian conviction that oppression, torture, and murder cannot overcome the love and life of God. Despite the gritty hope of this primary meaning, it is also a symbol that has been weaponized for purposes of domination, and because of this, it is a symbol that often invokes the devastation I'm attempting to describe. To begin in 1492, in the first moments of the so-called discovery of the New World, when European explorers and colonizers arrived on the shores of the Caribbean only to extend their stays in the mainland of the Americas, for it is there that we can begin to see the concrete detail of why symbolic devastation occurs. Christopher Columbus was undeterred by the great swell of ocean that separated Europe from the unknown, with its titan-sized calamitous waves and unending blue-gray horizon. A passionate and courageous sailor, no doubt, he took his crew and embarked upon these trepid and punishing waters with every goal in mind to find a route, the route, to Asia. But Columbus did not find Asia. Instead, he charted a path to a world yet unknown to Europe. He landed upon the shores of what we now call the Americas, and his captain, Gonzalo de Fernandez de Oviedo, described Columbus 
as the prime mover of a great enterprise. And de Oviedo is certainly correct. Columbus launched the beginning of a European movement across the Atlantic, one that would transform Europe and the Americas alike, drawing them together in an inextricable link of migration, mission, and exploitation. Missionaries, settlers, and conquistadors followed Columbus, equally undisturbed by the risk of ocean voyage, and crashed upon unfamiliar lands with every intent of making it their own. Columbus carried the cross with him. This is depicted in an illustration that accompanied a letter Columbus wrote to the king describing his journey to this world yet unknown to the Europeans. In the illustration, the ship that sails toward the Americas bears the symbol of the cross. On his third journey, Columbus planted a cross wherever he visited, proclaiming and in another sense enacting Spanish expansion. I have a tall cross erected on each cape, and I proclaim your highness's greatness to all the people, informing them that you are lords of Spain," writes Columbus in a letter detailing his third journey across the Atlantic. In the letter, he explains with utmost excitement that he has shared the gospel with the indigenous peoples. Now on the one hand, we cannot dismiss the heartfelt seriousness with which Columbus engages his evangelism. He couldn't do otherwise as an explorer whose self-understanding is thoroughly Christian. But the faith he shares is tainted, but obscured by the interests of greed and empire. Earlier in the letter, he writes with eagerness about seeing the indigenous people wearing pearls and gold on their necks. I was delighted by this sight, Columbus tells us, and tried hard to discover where they found these pearls. Evangelism for Columbus is tied to plunder. The symbols of the faith join imperial greed and desire for resources. In a violent evangelism, the political and religious conquest of the Americas, Luis Rivera Pagan says that in the colonial era, hidden behind the evangelizing cross, faintly veiled, was the conquering sword. Rivera Pagan is certainly right in his analysis. Of course, Columbus is not the only explorer who made use of the symbol. The explorer Alvar Nunez Cabeza de Vaca proclaimed land possession by building a church and erecting a large cross, growing the Spanish empire by drawing regions of Central America into it. And the infamous Hernan Cortes named one of his settlements City of the True Cross. When the Spanish wanted to survey South America to get a sense of their newly growing imperial hinterland, Maps were illustrated with settlements depicted by simple line drawings of churches with a cross stationed on their roof. Walter Mignolo, known decolonial scholar, points out that the indigenous map makers would often paint these church buildings around the edges of the map, an implicit way of signifying the Spanish Empire's ever-expanding reach to grab and take possession of their homeland. The 16th century intellectual Guamantpoma de Ayala, himself the child of the colonial era, being of both indigenous and Spanish heritage, painted a series of panels depicting this moment in history. One painting features a map with churches on it, the main feature marking the illustrated buildings being a cross. At first glance and outside of context, the image appears theologically neutral. It is merely a map. But the neutrality ends the moment one situates those images within the story of ecclesial abuse, which is thoroughly narrated by Guamantpoma 
in the first new chronicle in good government, his theological history of Inca society before and after the conquests. There, he has an extended treatment on the abuses of the priests. Here's Guamapoma's own words on clerical exploitation. The padres and priests oversee the making of cloth to sell, claiming that the cloth is for the prelates. They tell their managers to order the poor Indians to make the cloth, employing them without paying them anything at all throughout the kingdom. Like the Spanish, French and English settlers planted crosses as they encroached upon indigenous lands. This happened on the coasts of Maryland and as far north as Gasp Bay in what is now modern-day Quebec. Historian Susan Juster found a testimony from settler colonists that the cross had become so wedded to land possession that indigenous leaders would make a sign of the cross with their hand while pointing to the landscapes they called home. The point? They had learned that for European settlers, the cross was not merely about God, but God and the dispossession of their homeland. We can search through history and find these moments when the cross becomes deeply woven into a history of violence. The 19th century saw the rise of the Ku Klux Klan, and today the flaming cross is their hallmark symbol, provoking an ideology of white supremacy in an ever-increasing multi-ethnic United States. The flaming cross not only represents the Klan's desire for a white-dominated future, but also draws to mind their nostalgic view of the past, in which the accountability that white people have is only to themselves. Beyond the Klan, the cross has become tethered to a larger white Christian nationalist movement. It has been appropriated to signify the dream of an exclusionary United States, undergirded by a divine power supporting white rule and superiority. Today, it can be difficult to see the cross as anything but the symbolic projection of a white nationalist consciousness. In Chicagoland, where I grew up, it is easy to think that the colonial history of the cross has nothing to do with the church where I was raised, separated as they are by five centuries. But that fails to account for history's living consequences. The church itself sits upon the land home to the Council of Three Fires, but to invoke the home of the First Peoples, however, is also to invoke an absence. For even if this land is their home, the Church has not in any materially significant way recognized it as such. The land of the Council of Three Fires is marked by a violent history of the cross. A white cross is burrowed into the ground in a magnificent church building, takes up a cluster of land that could fill a few blocks of a Chicagoland subdivision. So even where there is seeming indifference, the cross appears to signify the consequences of colonialism by its sheer placement into the earth. It invokes those other colonial cross planters, Columbus, Cabeza de Vaca, Cortez, and others. We do not have the suburbs, sprawling megachurches, property ownership, and middle-class consumerism without conquest, a conquest marked by the cross. The symbol of the cross has a history and part of that history is its use by colonial missionaries and conquistadors who believed in a divine pronouncement that the lands of North and South America belonged to them. Burrowed into the soil of the Americas, the cross stood in for power and control, as it became linked to and a signifier for imperial gain. If for the Gospels the cross represents Jesus' life and its tragic end by Rome, that meaning has transfigured. In the U.S., the cross serves less as a reminder of Jesus' fellowship with the poor 
into an excruciating death and more as a reminder of the desire for power and control. I cannot understate the implications that follow from the journey of the cross as it made its way to the new world and how its many interpretations evolved over time. The history exposes the roots behind symbolic devastation. The cross's tie to colonialism devastates the cross's meaning and our ability to apprehend it. As I mentioned last episode, symbols like the cross are potent with liberating meaning for the world, entryways into discovering the revelation of a God whose love reaches out and embraces all of creaturely life. But access to such meaning is often lost because the symbols which narrate this story are tied so closely to injustice. The well of meaning, to use philosopher Paul Ricoeur's language, is plugged by the history of violent misuse, redirecting the symbol's signification to ideologies of imperial power. We end this episode on a sober note. It is important that we move slowly through a history that cuts through language and fills us with grief. Devastation arises from the history of the violent uses of the cross. Violence found in Columbus, Cortez, Spanish, French, and British colonialism, the Ku Klux Klan, and the suburban indifference found among many middle-class Christians who worship the God of the cross while forgetting that they do so on the land of the Council of Three Fires. So questions are raised. How might we recover the meaning of the cross? How might the symbol bear witness to the good news taught and lived by Jesus of Nazareth, empowered as he was by the God spoken of in the Hebrew scriptures? We turn to these questions next. Blessings until next time.